Let me introduce a word this morning that might help name some of those struggles that we have. It's a word that's, that begins with an A, alienation. Uh, here's a, a definition from an encyclopedia. Alienation in social sciences is the state of feeling that estranged or separated from one's environment, work, products of work, or self. Despite its popularity in the analysis of contemporary life, the idea of alienation remains an ambiguous concept with elusive meanings, the following variants being the most common. Powerlessness, meaninglessness, normlessness, cultural estrangement, social isolation, and self-estrangement. Let me read those last ones again. Powerlessness, meaningless, normlessness, cultural estrangement, social isolation, and self-estrangement. I feel like it names something of what um, I've experienced in my own life, of not belonging, of not being enough, of not being comfortable in my own skin. What an odd phrase that is, not being comfortable in your own skin. You don't need to have a, a, a Chinese body and a Scottish accent to have that. I know many people who, who don't feel comfortable in their own skin. I wonder if you felt some of that strange uh, self-estrangement. Into this, let me introduce to you another word, reconciliation. Reconciliation. Now, it's a huge topic um, that I've been given this, uh, this, this morning, um, imposed on me from above. Um, it's hard to know what to say in many ways and what not to say. It's going to be more of a reflection on a couple of passages rather than an ex exposition, which is what we usually try to do here of a passage. We're going to look at a couple of different um, passages and how that speaks to us about reconciliation. It's the antidote to alienation. So why don't I pray for us as we begin this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us by your spirit of your son, of your goodness, your love towards us, the ways in which your love and mercy follow us all the days of our lives, how it chases after us, even when we're far off. We ask, Lord, that you would um, allow um, our hearts and minds to be drawn towards you and, and, and the ways in which you see us and the ways in which you draw us in. Would the words of what you have for us this morning stick and be etched into our minds and those that are just of me uh, fall to the side. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, reconciliation. We're going to look at what the offer of reconciliation means, what we can be reconciled from, what we're reconciled to, what we're reconciled by, and what we're reconciled for. So reconciled from, reconciled to, reconciled by, and reconciled for. So what are we reconciled from? Or to put it another way, in what ways are we alienated? We're alienated from ourselves, from others, from creation. We're alienated from ourselves. There's something of that self-estrangement. Here are a couple of quotes here just to draw some attention to it. The first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. That's from a, a, an American physicist of the 20th century. Another quote, we are so accustomed to disguise ourselves to others that in the end we become disguised to ourselves. Is that an odd thing, that we can be disguised to ourselves, that we can be estranged from ourselves? We're estranged from other people, we're alienated from other people. History is a, a catalogue of, of that. We can name places, Auschwitz, Chernobyl, Hiroshima, Yemen, 
killing fields of Cambodia, Ukraine. We can name concepts, colonization, racism, genocide, slavery, sexism, child abuse. We can name people in our own lives throughout history. We're also alienated from creation. Is there anything of this earth that we don't end up plundering for our own good? Forests for wood, animals for burgers, oil for production, and more and more and more. All of these are, are fine, but do we, why do we always end up going too far? Do too much, exploit too dangerously. We just move towards that so naturally, don't we? We are alienated and we alienate. But what if this alienation from ourselves, from others, and from creation stems from the biggest alienation of all? Alienation to God. What if our alienation from God leads to every other alienation? What if being alienated from what we were made to be connected with alienates us from everything else? Kind of trickles down. What if being alienated from who we are made to belong to affects our relationship to every aspect of our lives? We are alienated. But there is hope. If I was to stop there, we'd go home a little sad, uh, wouldn't we? We are told that instead of alienation, we are offered reconciliation. God has reconciled us. And he's reconciled us to something. And this is our second point, really. We are reconciled from alienation to God himself. We're reconciled to God himself. The earliest chapters of the Bible speak first of perfect relationship. Walking in the garden with God without guile. Walking in the garden with others without shame. Walking in the garden with creation without thorns. The Bible starts with that right relationship with God, and that's the start. But then that relationship gets broken because of sin. Adam and Eve chose independence over dependence, mistrust over trust, their way rather than God's way. And that primary relationship between humankind and God is ruptured, and every other relationship gets ruptured with it. And in one sense, the rest of the Bible is the, the story or the history, his story, of restoring that relationship, of bringing reconciliation uh, to our relationship and to the relationship to the world. From Genesis to Revelation is that journey from relationship to alienation to reconciliation of God making things new, of God reconciling all things to himself, of God reconciling us to him. And so as Jesus comes onto the scene, we are told in Colossians from our passage, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. God is reconciling um, to himself all things. Reconciliation is bigger than we could imagine, really. And we get to be a part of it. But we also remember that he is the one who does the reconciling. He is the only one who can reconcile us. And it needs God's restoration of that relationship because it is us who have done that offending. We are at fault. We need to be uh, reconciled to God because our sin has broken up that relationship. We cannot unsin. We have taken off the tags, so to speak, and we can't kind of put it back in the packet and, and ask for a refund. The match has started. We are losing. We can't just kind of say, oh, let's start again. Let's, forfeit. let's start this game again. The good news is this, though, that God wants to reconcile us to himself. We want to return our dirty rags, our used rags, our soiled rags, but he gives us royal robes. 
We want to forfeit the match because we're losing, but he hangs the league winner's medal around our necks. He has made a way. There's a great divide that he heals. For when our hearts were far away, his love went further still. How does that happen? He reconciles from alienation to God and by Jesus Christ. Let me give an, an illustration of reconciliation. It's the parable of the prodigal son. Father has two sons. One says, thanks for all you've done, Dad. Appreciate it. I'm done with being here, uh, being at home, being with you, being with the family, being in these fields. Can I get my inheritance? I want to get out of here. And it's actually more than that, of course, isn't it? Ken Bailey on Middle Eastern culture says, um, when we hear this, can I get my inheritance? It means I'd rather you be dead. I'd rather have my money than you. It's saying to, to his dad, I'd rather you were dead than be alive. So the father decides, uh, divides his property, sells the land, the house, the farm, maybe hopes his son will, will change his mind, maybe even up until the last minute before the land sale continues and, and completes. Because his wife, they lose a third of everything they have and half of their financial security, of their relational security. The son goes off to a far country, spends it all. He doesn't put in good investments for early retirement. No, he wastes it on reckless living. And there's a famine in the land and he has to feed pigs for a living. So he decides to return to his father. It says in Luke 15, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you, against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he heads back, tail between his legs, rehearsing his groveling speech. But while he's a long way off, the father sees him and feels compassion for him and ran, runs and embraces him and kisses him. The son then says to the father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father kind of cuts him off. And says to the servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring in his hand and shoes in his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He is lost, he was lost and is now found. And they began to celebrate. Here is the heart of a father who longs to reconcile us to himself. He doesn't coerce or force us. He allows us to make mistakes and he still looks on us with compassion, love and affection. He looks on tiptoes almost um, into the distance in the hope that the son would return, hoping against hope that he would return. He longs to catch a glimpse of him. He runs out to meet him completely undignified in those cultures um, in order to dignify his son. And the son begins the speech and just after he says, I don't deserve to be your son. And before he can say, Treat me as one of your hired servants. He says to the servants, give him a robe, get him that ring. Let's have a party. My son has returned. He forgives, he restores, but at his own cost again. Here's the reconciling father who runs out to meet that first son. And no matter what it costs, he runs out and meets him and lavishes his love on him. Now that'd be a great place to stop. But Luke doesn't stop there. There's another son. We always focus on the prodigal son, but it's actually the prodigal God, isn't it? And um, he goes out and speaks to the second son. Now, his older son was in that field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. The party had already started. 
And he called one of the servants and asked what those things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Notice the father comes and meets with the second son too. He's continuing to be the reconciling father who runs out to meet his sons, no matter what it costs him. No matter what the issue is, he wants to bring them into the party. He wants to celebrate with them. Whether it's the reckless, hedonistic rejection of the father's status or a religious, dutiful rejection of the father's love, both are alienated in their own way. The father runs out to meet both in order to bring them in. That's his heart for them, to bring them in. Tim Keller, in his interpretation of this parable, puts it in the context of the three parables in Luke 15. There's a lost sheep and a lost coin, and then the lost son. In both of these, there is a dogged and determined pursuit of what is lost. The shepherd leaves the 99 sheep to find the one lost sheep, and there is delight. The woman has 10 coins, loses just one, but, but shakes up everything in the house just to find uh, that one coin. She seeks and seeks and seeks until she finds it. And she also throws a party. The final parable of this trilogy is the lost son. But this final parable has a striking difference. In the first two, someone goes out to seek and find what is lost, but not this last one. The son is lost and we expect someone to go out and search for him. Surely that's what all these parables have done. Someone's going to go out and seek and save this lost son. We hope the elder brother would go out and do that and say to his father, Father, my younger brother has been a fool and now his life is in ruins, but I'll go and look for him and bring him home. And if the inheritance is gone, as I expect, I'll bring him back into the family at my expense because that's what it was going to cost for that to happen. Of course, that is not the case. In our parable, you may remember well, the elder brother says, Look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your prop property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The elder brother knows that the father could not restore the younger brother except at the expense of the elder brother. He knows that the party was coming out of his inheritance and he absolutely hated it. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? This flawed elder brother forces us to imagine and wish for a true elder brother, for someone who does seek and save, for someone who does come into the far country to find us, one who comes to bring us home at his expense. Here's a quote from that book, Prodigal God. Think of the kind of brother we need. We need one who does not just uh, go to the next country to find us, but who will come all the way from heaven to earth. We need one who is willing to pay not just a finite amount of money, but at the infinite cost of his own life to bring us into God's family where our debt is so much greater. We deserve alienation, isolation, and rejection. Someone has to pay. There was no way for the younger brother to return to the family unless the older brother bore the cost himself. Our true elder brother paid our debt on the cross in our place. We have a true elder brother one who comes and finds us. Reconciliation, you see, is costly. Reunions are, are free. You just send the email out. You, you have a date, a place, and a time. The last one we had, I think, was a 10-year ten, ten uh, reunion from, from school. 
from secondary school. That's all you need. Whoever turns up will turn up. That's just a reunion. Reconciliation, however, is costly. It requires the dealing with the offense which caused the disruption of peace and harmony in the first place. The reason for the alienation has to be resolved. Our sin had to be dealt with and it couldn't just be swept under the carpet. And so back to that Colossians passage, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body, his body of flesh by his death. Reconciliation, folks, requires blood, requires death, actually requires a bloody cross. But Jesus Christ, the true elder brother, comes out to bring us home at the cost of his own life. Jesus, on the first Palm Sunday, is heading towards Jerusalem. He embarks on a journey to the far-off country to find us, not first to rebuke us, to clip us around the ear, or to give us a lecture, or to dominate us with wrestling moves like I did with my younger brother, even though he was six years younger than me. But first and foremost, he comes, he takes a journey to bring us home, to be embraced, to be kissed, to be brought back to the family. Palm Sunday, um, the passages are called the triumphant entry because people shout, Hosanna, rescue us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. The kids were awfully good at that, shouting. It's like they are born to shout or something. But the highs of the journey of Palm Sunday show how low the depths end up on Good Friday. Good for us, but brutal for him. Because when it looks like he won't rec uh, rescue the crowds in the same way that they would want, they actually end up shouting, whether it's the same crowd or a different crowd, crucify him, crucify him, only four days later. There Jesus is stripped naked, his robe gambled for a souvenir prize by the soldiers. He loses his dignity so that we would be clothed with a dignity and a welcome and royal robes that we don't deserve. His body is wrenched apart and he can't breathe so that we might breathe uh, the life of freedom. His body of flesh is scourged by whips designed to expose skin and bone so that our souls could be healed and restored. On the cross, his body is broken apart, pierced by nails and spear so that we could be made whole. He loses the gaze of the Father for the first time in all of eternity so that we would be able to be assured of the Father's eyes looking for us, even though we're far off searching for us so that we could finally be reconciled. He really is the true elder brother who reconciles us, who comes and brings us home. He reconciles himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by blood of the cross. Now, I've been listening to um, Luke 15 this week uh, on my kind of commutes, and when I've had a, a spare moment, I can, I've got a little app that just kind of plays it uh, over and over again with some music in the background. And um, on reading it Thursday afternoon as I was cycling back home, I heard that the father ran out to meet him, embraced him and kissed him. And I don't know if it was the sun or I was like, wow, praise the Lord, like it's not raining for a change this week. Uh, but something welled up inside me. It brought tears to my eyes thinking, maybe this is what so many of us, this is certainly what I long for. 
to be shown effusive, unbridled love and embrace and welcome. But the father runs out to the son and, and meets him, doesn't even let him finish um, what he has planned to say. After each story, there is uh, celebration and delight. After every parable we have, it's communal. They always have a party. They always kind of have a celebration. The woman finds a coin and calls her neighbors. The, the shepherd finds a sheep and they have a party. God is not begrudgingly reconciling us. I think that's what I often feel. That God is um, just doing it because he kind of has to. He is seeking after us. He is waiting for us to begin to realize he is waiting for us. And the moment we turn to him, we realize that he has been turned towards us all along. I don't know if, it, if it's the same for you, but often we struggle uh, to accept that there's a God who kind of loves us this kind of much. When we hear these sort of things, that God runs out to meet us, that the elder brother comes and finds us and brings us home, we kind of think, oh, I don't really feel deserving of this. I don't feel worthy of this. Notice how the son says that. But I think that's right. We don't deserve it. But it's him that kind of bestows that on us. He's the one who comes out to meet us. And the party is for us, um, even when we don't um, deserve it or when we don't realize that we are worthy of it. Um, I've been trying to um, visualize this, to feel it in myself, this love of God. I think we can kind of hear it and it washes past us sometimes. Um, but a few weeks ago, um, we were in staff meeting and we were asked by Alistair to kind of meditate on, on this particular verse. Zephaniah 3:17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now, there are not many places where we do much singing these days. I think it's a sad thing that we've lost in our culture. Uh, the place I thought of uh, where people uh, did loud singing um, was um, the final songs on nights out with my friends in Glasgow and Manchester in the UK. One or two in the morning, right? Um, everyone's had a nice evening. Um, they maybe that's to have an understatement, perhaps. Um, and people start singing when the right songs come on. There are songs that would get everyone singing. And people would loudly sing. The next days, you'd have like painful throats because of the, the amplification and all that sort of thing. The songs I remember are, I would walk 500 miles by the Proclaimers. That's one. <laughs> Never Forget by Take That. You know that? Um, Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi. And as I was reflecting, we were asked to read through it a few times. I was like, who does loud singing these days? It's so weird. Like, we don't even do that in church, never mind anywhere else. But it was on nights out like this that I began to think, maybe God rejoices over us like that. I picture the Lord singing loudly um, at a party, at one of these parties, at the end of the night, arm in arm, bouncing around. Lloyd, you're halfway there. Lloyd. <laughs> Or, never forget where you're coming from. Or, <laughs> the 500 miles one is quite good because there's something there, isn't there? And I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more. 
just to be the one who walks a thousand more to fall down at your door. Da -da -ka -da -da -ka. Right? <laughs> Loud singing at the end of a night. Maybe God delights over us like that. You're halfway there. You're living in a prayer. Never forget where you're coming from, where you're going. He's walked 500 miles. He's walked 500 more just to be the one who brings you home, who comes at your door and brings you home and lets you know how delighted he is that you have come back, that you're reconciled to him, that you've been brought home, that you don't need to be alienated anymore, but he brings you home and he's delighted to do that. And he sings over you with loud singing and he celebrates you with more delight than you can know. What if that's true? What if that's right? What if that reconciliation is what our hearts actually long for and pine for and we look for in other things, whether that's in wealth or, or, or in, in provision um, or, or going off to a far country? What if we're meant to just come home after all that journeying and traveling and finding ourselves when actually we're meant to find ourselves in him and that's the love that we need and that's the love we've been given. What would it take for you to feel it in your body? You've probably not had um, nights out in Glasgow um, where it's kind of rough by the end of the night, um, I must admit. What, what Can you imagine uh, the Lord saying and speaking over you, what does a party for you look like um, at the cost of his son, but they're free for you because he loves you? We need to believe this, to believe it more, to feel it in our bones, to know it in the deepest depths of our being. Because only then do we become ministers of reconciliation, of, of ambassadors of reconciliation. Let me read this quote from Henry Nouwen. How do we work for reconciliation? First and foremost, by claiming for ourselves that God through Christ has reconciled us to God. It's not enough to believe this with our heads. We have to let the truth of this reconciliation permeate every part of our beings. As long as we are not fully and thoroughly convinced that we have been reconciled with God, that we are forgiven, that we have received new hearts, new spirits, new eyes to see and new ears to hear, we continue to create divisions among people because we expect from them a healing power they do not possess. Only when we fully trust that we belong to God and can find our relationship with God um, and all that we need for our minds, hearts, and souls, can we truly be free in this world and be ministers of reconciliation? This is not easy. We readily fall back into self-doubt and self-rejection. We need to be constantly reminded through God's word, the sacraments, and the love of our neighbors that we are indeed reconciled. We are reconciled from alienation to God by Christ for the sake of the world. We are reconciled from alienation to God by Christ for the sake of the world. We can only do this well when we embrace that we are children of God and brothers and sisters of Christ. Our task is reconciliation because that's God's heart. Wherever we go and see divisions among people in families, communities, cities, countries, continents, all these divisions are tragic reflections of our alienation from God. Our separation has blinded us to the reality of our common humanity with everyone else. Our sacred task is to reveal that truth in the reality of everyday life, that we can live that out. And so the question is for us, for all the things that we do, does this lead to reconciliation among people? 
Does this lead to reconciliation among this group or this relationship or this situation? It's vast, isn't it? There's so many needs around us. We live in an alienated, fragmented world and it's getting worse. There's much to learn about how to kind of navigate all this. As a newcomer, a relative newcomer to Canada, I have much to learn about what truth and reconciliation means here, about what it looks like to lean into complex and painful Canadian history to open my heart towards the hope and healing and reconciled relationships with all brothers and sisters of this land who have gone before us. Would our realization of God's reconciling us to himself enable us to have a posture of reconciliation as we seek to be ministers and ambassadors of that? Would we be characterized by grief, forgiveness, and generosity, since there are many things that can only be seen through eyes that have cried. So we are reconciled from alienation to God by Christ. Let's allow this reconciliation be for the sake of the world.